Hello and welcome to the Ted Jones World Podcast. I am your host, Ted Jones. And today, guys, we're going to learn a little something about money. I know I always come on here and talk to you guys about saving stuff, where to put money, but let's actually talk to a professional here. Host of the Thinking Like a Bank Podcast, Sari Ibrahim. Sari, how are you, man? Hey, Ted. Good, good. How are you, man? I am great, dude. It's honestly a little bit hot um, in this house here. I'm at my dad's house in Long Island. So like, this is one of the few days I've been able to get out here, but I'm super excited to be here, man. And good to see your face. Yeah, yeah. Likewise, man. I'm excited to be here. I love your energy and I'm glad. I'm glad to be here. Good, dude. Um, So why don't you give us a quick uh, background, you know, on your career in finance and then we'll get into it. Yeah, definitely. So um, I started my career in finance about six years ago when I was doing my MBA in Chicago. That's where I'm from, Chicago. And um, I started working with like different insurance companies. So I kind of started off more on the insurance backed side uh, of financial services. And then after that, really, the, 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 the biggest difference was when I started the company financial asset protection. So pretty much what I do is I'm a financial, financial advisor, financial coach, and work with clients in all 50 states. Uh, pretty much what we do, our, our main focus is real estate investors and entrepreneurs. That's who we niche down to. And yeah, and I love it. I love talking to people about money, about being a problem solver, and more so looking at money, not just because of, you know, not just from a, a, a standpoint of money, but more so from the standpoint of a tool or a method that you would use to accomplish certain goals or objectives in your life. Now, in terms of just like, you know, being a money professional, did you find that like, you really didn't learn about money until you went to school for it, you know, because you figured like when I was in high school and college and let alone even middle school, like I didn't learn a thing about money, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Ted. Yeah, that's right. So like it's people don't usually learn about money until either they're in college or after that or even in the real world. Like when you're actually working and you have bills to pay and you're making money, that's what I think when you truly start learning about money. And I think it should be the other way around. I think at least like when you're in junior high and high school, you should take like basic accounting, basic, like, you know, economics, you know, these basic, you, you, you should be required to, you know, to kind of get an understanding of how the world works, like, like money wise. But yeah, I didn't start learning. So when I was doing my MBA, I learned probably about 10% of what I know right now um, about money, finance, economics. But what really happened is obviously when I got into the workforce, when I, when I started working, when I started my company, when I started working with mentors and life coaches, that's when I really started to learn more about money and how these, you know, and, and, and since my background was in insurance too, uh, insurance companies are very similar to banks, you know, as, as far as managing money, managing risk. That also opened my mind up, my mind up to how do I, you know, how do I keep this money and how do I grow it over time? Okay, so before I, you know, I get into the laundry list of questions that I have for you, <laughs> yeah. is there something, um, you know, I don't want to catch you off guard here, but is there something that um, um, their average American should learn first and foremost about money? What's like the most important thing that, um, in terms of thinking like a bank? Yeah, the average citizen should be thinking about. In their yeah, I think that everybody should, you know, the basics is know your numbers, you know, know how much exactly you make, how much money you spend, where it goes, where it sits. Um, if you're in debt, how much debt you have. If you're an entrepreneur, know your customer numbers, know how to get more cups. You should know your numbers very thoroughly, very well. And it should be every day. It shouldn't just be like once in a while where you review your numbers. I review my numbers every single morning at seven o'clock in the morning. Every day, it's like a habit I have. I have a tracker and I track how much I have in my checking account, my savings, my cash value, life insurance, other things, other like, you know, Bitcoin, other things like that. I measure, I measure how much I made that day and how much my debt is for that day. Always. So wow. I, you, I think you need to know your numbers very, very well. Like whether you're, whether you're in debt, 
and you have no money or you're a billionaire, you need to know exactly how much money you have, how much money you make and other figures of your financial life. So you think that actually having like, uh, like an Excel spreadsheet is something yeah. that you take a look at, like, you know, maybe not as much as you do, but definitely taking a look at it, you know, like every other day or something like that to really just keep everything in line. Yeah, definitely. Because when you see, when you see your numbers every day, you know, more, you get to learn more about your personality and more about um, your habits. And you also have like, you, you start to remember your goals more because one, one reason why a lot of people don't reach goals in general, not just financial goals, but goals in general is because they forget about them. They kind of lose sight of them. And the more you focus on something, the more you're like, the more likely you are to get it. So if you really want something really badly, just focus on it. Just remember it every day, write it out every day. Let's go, bro. I love that <laughs> attitude. Also, so, you know, when people talk about money and, you know, potentially trying to gain their, their um, you know, net worth over X amount of years, people really talk about putting money into a house and then, yeah. you know, kind of letting it sit there. It's your nest egg. And then maybe 30 years later, after you paid off the mortgage, you'll sell it and get a solid return there. Mm -hmm. So is there something that uh, people should be thinking about in terms of like how much of my money should I really be putting in an asset that is hard to move? You know, like yeah. a single family home, for example, yeah. in the suburbs or yeah. however it may be. Yeah, definitely. And I think, yeah, so if you're comparing like, for example, uh, and you're in real estate, so you know this, so if you're comparing like buying versus renting, obviously the buying route, it, it doesn't take a financial wizard to tell you that, you know, the buying route is going to be more financially rewarding for you later on. But one thing that I want people to realize that just owning a home um, doesn't mean that you're going to, you know, guarantee that you're going to grow your wealth over time through your home. Because here's the thing, if you buy a house for $300,000, let's just say a single family house for $300,000, and then you sell it for $600,000. Now, everybody's ultimately going to just jump up and say, oh, your profit was, you know, $300,000. You take 600,000 minus 300,000. But is that really the profit? <laughs> because uh, you have interest. So, so typically the, if you, if you stayed in a home for 30 years, you've probably already spent twice the home just in principal and interest to the lender. Uh, that's one, that's one factor there. Plus property taxes. Now I don't know where people are. If you're in Long Island, it's going to be completely different than being in Nebraska. But for the most part, if you have, you know, $10,000 a year in property taxes, that also has to be figured. That also increases over time. Plus homeowners insurance, you know, let's just say $1,000 a year. Plus um, association fees, if you have association fees. Plus um, maintenance on the home. I think if you bought a house for $300,000 and then sold it for $600,000, maybe you would have just broken even on everything. Maybe even less than that. But that route is still a lot better than renting. But now, so I, I guess to answer your question is like, where does your wealth live? And I think your wealth would typically live outside of the home you live in. So the home you live in, that's just a return of your money. That's not a return on your money. It's more of you're going to get your money back by buying a house and living in it. But as far as having wealth that's going to accumulate and grow, that's probably going to be done in real estate investments where other people are, you're, you're renting out other properties or you're flipping other properties. That's probably where the wealth is going to happen. Or it doesn't have to be real estate but other financial vehicles that will actually compound and grow over time. So if somebody were to actually like want to buy a house, they're figuring like, Oh, I want to move out of, let's say New York city. They want to yep. move to the suburbs. How much do you think of their net worth should initially be going into that house that they're potentially going to, you know, raise a family, get married and stay there for the next 20, 30 years? Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah. I've actually never been asked that question, but from like a lending perspective, I think that about, 
maybe 40% of your total income should go to uh, pr uh, the principal interest, taxes, homeowners association, um, and other maintenance costs that are associated with the house. So I think that's, that's one way to look at it. 40% of your income goes to your, the single family home you live in maximum. It should, I think, be less than that, but maximum total. Another way to look at it, maybe I think, I don't know, just a rough number, maybe 20% of your overall net worth should be in your home. The other 80% should be in uh, assets that appreciate over time that are actually compounding and, and making you money. Your home, even though it is appreciating over time, the fact that you live in it, the fact that you have to pay property taxes and maintenance and all these other things, it's probably not going to be a money generating asset. It's not a money generating asset for you. So, um, you know, you and I talked briefly on the phone about your thoughts on crypto and like, yeah. while you know, I'm, my knowledge is somewhat limited, you know, I really do believe that crypto will be the wave of the future and such. Yeah. And just in terms of like AI and all this crap, like on YouTube and Instagram, you know, for example, you can buy likes or buy views. And I'm just thinking that like in some world in 10 years, it might get to the point where like you're able to put fake uh, fans in the seats, you know, like yeah. it's an actual person, but it's an AI in the seats. So do you have any, I mean, future thoughts on how much crypto can really go further and like how much a person should maybe focus on crypto like at this point in terms of like your knowledge? Yeah. So just to be clear, I'm not an expert on cryptocurrency, but from like a basic financial standpoint, I think that um, the problem with cryptocurrency, I think it's amazing. I think it's amazing how like specifically Bitcoin, you know, how it's like, like technically like governments can't interfere with it. Wall Street can't interfere with it, you know, but at the same time, I think the, you know, social trends could affect it. You know, in other words, um, if Tesla says or whatever says they're going to take Bitcoin or not, that could drive up the price. It could dramatically reduce the price. And I think that's a problem. I think that if you're going to invest in something, make sure it's not too volatile because volatility is actually, is not a good quality to have in finance. Because if, if you have, for example, $10,000 in investment and then that investment drops to 5,000, not only did you at that given moment lose 5,000, but now you're also thinking, All right, I need to sell now. I need to get out of this because before it drops even lower. And now you're emotionally attached to it. And that emotional attachment to the volatility is different for different people. Some people are used to that. They're, they're, you know, other people, that'll drive them crazy. Um, other people, people actually get sicker when investments drop. They literally, their health reduces. So you want to consider these things, these intangible abstract things that are outside of just investments. You want to think about you as a person, where you, what's happening with your money. So I think, you know, from thinking like a bank to thinking like a bank aspect is one thing that banks do is, they have the most of their wealth, the majority of their wealth in super safe assets, like whole life, like cash value, whole life insurance, like super boring assets because yeah, they're only going to grow like 3%, 3.5% every year, but no matter what they grow. And that's where thinking like a bank comes in. It's that no matter what happens with social media, no matter what happens in the stock market, no matter what happens with the values of currencies or the values of markets, my money is still going to compound and grow. And that's where that I think is one of the essential rules of thinking like a bank is how do you grow your wealth no matter what? And I think cryptocurrency can't do that right now. It's too volatile. But I think if you want to invest in cryptocurrency, understand the risk behind it and understand that you want to be able to grow your money no matter what happens. Okay. So, um, you know, in talking about putting your money and having it invest no matter what, yeah. what would you say to a person, like let's say a 30-year-old, who just got out of debt, paid off all co like college loans, and now they have $20,000. Where is the place to invest it? Because I mean, you don't want to buy a single family home with $20,000. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, if you could find them. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so one thing that actually like I've been so, you know, um one of the niches I have with real with financial planning is a lot of them are real estate investors. And one thing that's kind of fascinating right now is that like you could do like passive real estate investing. And for those who don't know, like there's a difference between active investing and passive active real estate investing and passive real estate investing. Active is like I'm gonna go out, buy a property, talk to the real estate agent, get the property, close on it, hire the contractors. That takes skills. Like you actually have to know what you're doing in a situation right, like, like that. Flip the units, maybe one bedroom to two bedrooms, something yeah, like that. Yeah, exactly. Like that, that's, that's lucrative, but you have to know what you're doing in real estate to do that. Or there's passive investing. That's where you literally, all you're doing is just moving money from your bank account to somebody else's fund. They're doing everything. They're finding the properties. They're hiring the contractors. They're staying on top of everything. They're finding the sellers. They're doing everything. And all you're doing is just like buying shares in the property. So let's just say $10,000. Yeah, you can buy a single family home with that, but you could possibly buy five or eight or 10% of a property along with other people, like a syndication, and then get a return that way. I think that is a really good idea. If you just have like 10 or 15 or $20,000, that'll probably yield you a higher return. And it's, it's not safe that you're still risk involved with that, but it's safer than buying cryptocurrency and then buying, then, and, and buying stocks because to buy stocks, you still have to, there's some, you still have to be active with them. You still have to manage them. You still have to monitor them. But with real estate, it's like you're, you're buying, you know, five, 10% of an actual asset with an actual address that you can look up and find. And you actually own a part of that legally, you own a, you know, a, a piece of that property. So it's safer than other types of investments. That's what I would do. That's what I would recommend somebody to do. So in an instance like that, would you be a limited partner? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, limited partner. Um, yeah. If you can, if you can just explain the difference to everyone really quick. Yeah. Limited partner is you're just literally buying shares of this. You're just moving money from your bank account to somebody else's fund. They're doing everything. You also don't have a say in anything. You can't say, oh no, don't buy this property, hire this contractor, you know, do the paint the walls this way. You have no say in anything. That's, that's the contractors and the owners, the active and the general partners usually. They do everything. They manage it. They're like the general managers of the project. They manage everything. You really don't have any say. You're also limited in sense of liability. If anything happens, the only thing potentially you could lose is just the, the money you've invested. That's, that's where the limit is really. You're limited to that point. Whereas if you're an active investor, general partner, you make a mistake, you know, the liability can go beyond the property, depending, you know, not to get too far into asset protection, but it could go beyond that. Whereas limited partners are only limited to what they've invested in. Like if you're a general partner and you have like a good guy guarantee, it means like you won't do something bad <laughs> yeah. with the money and shit like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And in some situations, if you did, like if a general partner screwed over a whole bunch of people, not only does the general partner lose what they've invested in the property, but they can also be, you know, civilly liable. They could, or criminally even liable in some situations where they can go after their personal assets because, you know, they screwed over a bunch of creditors and a bunch of investors. That happens a lot. You know what I mean? Which is, which is, which brings me to my next point is that being a passive investor, uh, being a limited partner, in these passive deals, you want to make sure you're doing your homework on the general partners and on the people. Um, and one way to do that is you obviously would Google their name. You would search them on biggerpockets.com. You would search them on LinkedIn. You would try to dig on online to find any negative things about them. And then you'd also want references from people who have done deals with them. You actually want to call them, talk to them, how their experience has been. And then if you're doing like $20,000, I would do flips only. And I would do like within like two or three month turnaround period nothing longer than that because you want your money back, obviously. And then you just keep flipping that over and over again. Um, and then there's obviously the more advanced way that's syndication. That's where you would invest like at least $50,000. And then that's more of like a five-year hold where you don't get that money back for like five years. 
but you are getting like monthly or quarterly distributions from rental income and things like that. That's more of like complex um, syndication and that's more experience. And then also you wouldn't, you wouldn't be putting your last $50,000 into that deal. It's like, that's like you have $200,000 in the bank and you're going to take 50,000 from that and then invest in a deal while still having your other reserves. It's not like you're going to save up 50,000 and then trade all of that in for a deal. So on social media and um, basically, I mean, basically social media, you know, there, there are definitely like a few real estate investors who seem to have taken like over the space in terms mm-hmm. of like, oh, like invest your money with me. I'll make you rich. Like a Grant Cardone, yeah, maybe yeah. like a Ty Lopez. Is there anything in particular that you should be searching besides like a good reputation for a, a guy who's going to be investing in? I don't know, one of the more business-friendly states, right? Like a Texas or Florida. Yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah, yeah. So um, you obviously, besides the reputation, like you want to make sure, number one, they're legit. But also more than that is you want to, alongside that, you also want to um, ask them what their fees are. So one of the problems with like Grant Cardone's fund was that he was charging too high of fees. That was one of the downsides to it. So, and I don't know, I didn't, I didn't follow up too much with that. I didn't do that much research. I have, I don't know what, what's going on with him right now. Well, I do, I do know what you're talking about. I know that yeah. there was like a brief lawsuit, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Because of the fee, you know, the fee charge. So that's something you want to ask is what, what are you taking from this? You know what I mean? Like that's, you don't want something that's going to eat into your, your profits because here's the thing, like seeing like 1%, 2%, they might seem like tiny, but when you accumulate, when you count that into your profits and your gains, it could be like 10% or 20% of your gains because your gains are only, you know, so much. So like 1% of that or 1% of the total amount that you invested could be substantial. So you want to do the math. In other words, you want to do the math. You want to ask questions. And then here's the trick is that I would go smaller, but more experienced than just larger and more, uh, more customers. Meaning that like I have, for example, I have a couple connections. One of them is in Maryland. He does like smaller deals. You know what I mean? He does like, for example, um, $200,000 homes. He'll collect from like three or four investors that I would recommend more than going and through and he'll, and he'll uh, put them together in a put deal them together, put the renovations flip. And then maybe two or three months later, give like, you know, 15 to 20% returns on those that I think is more attractive and that's more controlled. There's less people, there's less cooks in the kitchen, you know, whereas when you go for these huge, massive deals, that's only, I think good for people that have a lot of money. They just don't know what to do with it. And when you have these huge, massive deals, they have the opportunity to charge more because first of all, they probably have to charge a little bit more because they do more marketing. They have more employees. They need to charge a little bit more for their fees that. And then also um, they, you know, they already have such a strong name. So it's like more like take it or leave. But like, if you want to invest with us, you could, if you want to, but this is what it is. So I would start off with more of the smaller people. And then way you, the way you find the smaller people are through advisors, you know what I mean? Like, so a financial advisor who has real estate brokers and real estate people in their network, uh, it's more about the people than it is about the brand names, the logos and the social media, shiny stuff. You want to actually talk to the individuals and then see the individual person. You want to talk to them over zoom, over video, get to know them, get to know their personalities and work with them. Like you want, it's more about the people than it is about the companies. Definitely. And also, cause you know, you talk about like the shininess, you know, when you yeah. see all these like, you know, big shot real estate investors <laughs> yeah. buying like the sexiest stuff, like, near the beach or with an enormous pool and fitness center in Florida or wherever it is. So just going back, I guess, uh, to what we were talking about initially, what do you think about Texas versus Florida? Are those like the two places, like the two best places to kind of focus in on where you want to put your money? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Texas and Florida are really good because there's a lot of volume and a lot of, uh, a lot of people obviously want to have their addresses in Texas and Florida because of like state taxes and stuff like that. There are no state taxes. So you want, you want, you know, Texas and Florida are good 
Um, but also I wouldn't just stay there too. Like obviously like um, there's a difference too between cash flow properties and appreciation properties. So like places like Toronto, Vancouver, San Francisco, LA, New York City, these are more appreciation. Like you're, in other words, if you invest in a rental property, you're probably not going to make money. It, it could be negative cash flow. You know what I mean? But over time, and you know, this is a real, you know, in real estate in New York City, but the appreciation is so much higher than other places in the country. So you have to consider that too, whether it's flips and more of uh, making money that way or through rental income, it's going to be a difference of that. Texas and Florida, I think are really good for rental income. You can make money that way. That's good for deals. When you do like syndication deals where you're investing in deals and getting monthly income from, um, and maybe even flips. I don't know. Yeah. I'm not a real estate professional, but I, everything I know in real estate is from my clients and helping them with their financial planning and seeing how much money they're making from these deals, you know, and, and, and allocating them to the vehicles that we help them with. Where are you placing the most money these days? Would you say? Um, like outside of real estate? Yeah. Outside of real estate. Excuse yeah. Me. So it's, you know, part of the show, like thinking like a bank, you know, so banks, most of their wealth is in whole life, actually whole life insurance. And, um, there, there are reasons why they do that. You know, most of their wealth is going to die, right? <laughs> well, that, so there's the, there's the death benefit part of life insurance. There's also the cash value part of life insurance, the cash growth of it. That's arguably the more important piece because obviously you need to move that money and, and use it. Uh, banks collectively have about $200 billion in whole life insurance together. And the reason why is because the growth of it is tax deferred. Um, they always have the ability to borrow against it, regardless of market conditions, regardless of how they're doing as a bank. They always have the ability to borrow against it and leverage it. Uh, the growth of it grows outside of the stock market. So it's growing no matter what, no matter what happens. Um, and usually the death benefit, the, you know, if we're going to talk about the death benefit, usually that's income tax-free. So these are reasons why banks use it. And that's why I started the show thinking like a bank. You know, we're thinking of where to put money, where to grow it, no matter what happens, how can it grow? And then how can we access it? So banks would, for example, have a billion dollars in whole life insurance, go in there, borrow $100 million, take the $100 million out, and then loan it out to a bunch of people and mortgages and other investments, and then make more money off those investments while still having their core compound and grow as if they never touch it. So people, you don't have to be a banker or own a bank to do this stuff. You know, you could do this on a, on a, on a smaller level, you know, with like, a, like the example you said, you know, $20,000 investment. You could, if you had 20,000, if you had like $30,000 in cash value in your whole life policy, you could borrow $20,000 from that, use that for real estate flips, deals, you know, partnerships, limited partnerships, and then flip that and then use them profits to go back into your policy. So, yeah, You're making so it sound so easy. So in terms of like, I mean, just really understanding the tax law and tax code, I mean, do you need to link up with a CPA at some point? As, yeah, as at, <laughs> yeah at, at, any, at every point, I recommend, I'm not a tax professional. I recommend you do talk to your CPA about this especially on the real estate side when you're investing in real estate deals because there's like a depreciation and other things like that you can account for. So yeah, of course, have your CPA or your tax attorney involved in this throughout the whole process. Um, absolutely. Yeah, it, it, it does get tricky. You know, it does obviously get tricky. Um, some of the deals we work with, we only work with the, the accountants and the lawyers in the picture because we want to make sure like everything is like congruent on, every, on all parts. Right. So um, in terms of like, you know, I'm, as you know, I'm a content creator making YouTube, Instagram, yeah. all this crap. So I'm seeing that the idea of moving to Puerto Rico has recently become hot. Yeah. I mean, is there any benefit besides, I mean, the tax income in terms of like moving to Puerto Rico? Are more states going to change their tax laws, especially with like Biden in the administration? Like, how's that going to work? Yeah. So this actually hit me like really fast, you know, being like 
being a financial planner, I obviously have to keep researching, researching these things. So like, you're like the third person who's mentioned Puerto Rico in the last like two days since it's like, since this week, you know? So I haven't had a chance to do any of the research, but generally I have heard of Puerto Rico being the place to go mainly because of the taxes. So some people are like paying like 5% income taxes living in Puerto Rico or having their, at least having their address in Puerto Rico. So I am going to do more research on this. I'm going to do more research on, you know, how does that work? How do you get in such a low tax bracket by living in Puerto Rico? But yeah, that's probably, I think the biggest advantage is the tax, the tax breaks that you'll get living in Puerto Rico. So you talk about having your address in like Puerto Rico or before we were talking yeah. about Texas or Florida. Can you just yeah. quickly explain why somebody would need to have their address in one of those places? And also, I guess you'd need to be there more than half the year, right? Yeah, yeah. Again, I'm not a tax professional, so I could be telling you something that's not true, right? But yeah, it's about <laughs> the, when you file your taxes, it's, it's obviously about your, your, where your address, where your residential address is. So like, this is where like, for example, California would come in. Like some people would own a company in Florida or Texas. That's where, that's where their corporation is. That's where, the, that's where the licensed entity is at in Florida, for example. But they're renting in California and they could be even doing business in California with people. Like, you know, but, the, but when the transactions happen, they go through Florida. So that way they could avoid the California thing. But I'm not a tax professional and there could be a horror story with that, like California finding out <laughs> and coming after you for stuff like that. So you know, talk to your tax professional, but yeah, it would be based off of your residential address. And if one, I mean, once you guys listen in and watch and start getting into the big bucks, you definitely got to hire someone like Sari here or uh, a CPA or actually both. Both. both yeah, for sure. Both. both. Yeah. For somebody who's making serious cash. So Sari, before um, we get out of here, man, I want you to give us a, a, a quick rundown of your life, man. Grew up in <laughs> Chicago. You obviously know your shit. What's, what does the future look like for you and thinking like a uh, bank podcast, man? Yeah. Thanks for asking that. So one of the things I want to do is I, I want to be able to help a lot more people. I want to start a not for like a national, not for profit organization where we give free financial advice to people, free financial coaching, 100% for free. Our only fund, our only revenue would be through donations. So that's, that's like a five-year goal I have and pretty, pretty much help people who are like, who can't afford their mortgages, people who are thinking about bankruptcy, people who have a lot of credit card debt, whatever the case is, they're students in college, they don't have that much money there, but they need financial help. Pretty much having like, like an app even where they can go to it and just communicate with a volunteer financial advisor that doesn't get paid off of anything they do all for free nationally in all 50 states, as many times as you want unlimited access to it. It's probably going to cost me a lot of money to do that. I don't know how to start a not-for-profit organization, but that's probably going to take some time. So I think that'll happen in five years. Nice, man. And also, I think just one thing in general, people really don't understand. I mean, just from the basis of finance, I think is like taxes. Yeah. Like when you're getting paid as an independent contractor or whatever, and you get that $500 check, you know, the 500 will go right out the door or whatever, right to rent. And then, you know, at the end of the year, you owe, I don't know, dude, how much? 200 bucks on that? (laughs) Yeah. Something like that. Yeah, Um, Yeah. So besides, you know, really holding stuff back for cash, I mean, for tax, excuse me, what do you think is the smartest thing to do with your money? Yeah, so there's this concept. It's called profit first. Um, it's where pretty much you have like allocations. I like that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you have like allocations for your money. So like every dollar you earn, like you automatically put like five cents away in um, not five cents, but you put you know five percent in um, profit. Uh, you pay yourself from if you're an independent contractor, for example, you pay yourself like fifteen percent. You put like fifty percent to operating expenses to like reinvest in the business. And then the rest of it in taxes, you know, so you have like five buckets, income, profit, taxes, operating expenses, and owners pay. 
And then this gives you like um, an idea of what to do with that money. So that way, cause a lot of people they're thinking like, all right, I just made like, for example, a hundred thousand dollars. What do I do with it? I, I have to pay 20% of that to taxes. Let's say, all right, do I reinvest it? Okay. But I have to, you know, pay myself too for my personal stuff. And it gets, it, it makes it too subjective. But when you put out, when you allocate percentages, you take away that and you put more math in front of it and you make it like more like controlling where it's like, all right, you know what? I know exactly what I'm gonna do with this money. And this is where thinking like a bank comes in too. They, they're very good with like allocating percentages to the, to the penny. You know what I mean? Like this is how much we pay for employees. This is how much we pay for rent. This is how much we pay for marketing. This is how much we have to pay our taxes. And, and it, it, it all like kind of all fits into the, the right buckets. So in terms of thinking like a bank podcast, what would be the uh, best episode for our listeners and viewers here to watch? I listened to the first one and it was great. And I definitely <laughs> learned a lot already. Yeah. Like, what do you think would be the, um, the best one to check out? Yeah, episode seven, Profit First. That one's really good. Uh, oh, I think a lot of them are good. Um, I can't remember. Oh, um, I, I really liked episode 17 and 19. They talk about taxes. If you are self-employed, you can qualify for tax credits. Check out episode 17 and episode 19 about those. Um, a lot of good stuff about taxes. Okay, good. Sari, when are you coming to New York, man? We got to get you to a Ted Jones comedy show. I was telling Sari that... Um, uh, you know, I've done improv in the past yeah. and linked on that mutual um, yeah. activity. So that was great, man. When are you coming to New York? Yeah, I'd love to. I haven't been to New York, man. And I don't even know how many years I've been to New York since 2013. That was the last time I was in New York. Oh, damn. It, it yeah, yeah. So much, um, man. It's so great. Yeah, I love New York. I used to go to New York a lot, actually, when I was younger. All over New York, I used to go. Um, yeah, but I'd love to. Yeah, I'd love to meet up with you in New York City. Check out your stand-up. Uh, check out the improv there, you know, as mentioned, you know, I did improv in Chicago one time, you know, I did improv one in Chicago, second city. So that's awesome. Are you going to do, are you going to do it again when it comes back? Hopefully. Yeah. 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 For sure. That's it's great, um, it's awesome. Larry Ibrahim. Thank you so much for joining the Ted Jones world podcast. Guys, we haven't done a virtual episode in so long since quarantine, but this is <laughs> an amazing time. Sarah, you really know your shit, dude. And <laughs> thank uh, you. we'll talk soon. Okay. Th thanks, Ted. Appreciate it. Thanks so much.